evidence and answers. Evolutionists claim that millions of years ago lived a human species related to our modern day man. These creatures are named hominids. Once again, they're claiming another hominid has been found. But is this one really the missing link? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Continuing today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will be speaking with noted apologist, Dr. Fuzz Rana, about scientific evolution. Here with the conclusion to an interview entitled, Homo Naledi and the Hominids, Have We Found the Missing Link? is our host, Pat Zucran. And then you have Homo habilis, which is also a rather diminutive creature, but this creature clearly walked erect and employed, again, what's called obligatory bipedalism. It looks as if this creature was the first creature to make tools, at least in the, among the hominins, and it, the, the tools that it made were relatively crude, where it was taking rocks and striking one rock with another, producing flakes, and those flakes were, in effect, the tools. So when we hear about these creatures making tools, we have to be careful not to over-ascribe capabilities of these creatures that they actually didn't have because, again, the tools were simply stone flakes that they used. Homo erectus followed after Homo habilis. This was, creature was about 5 feet in height, uh, maybe about 120 pounds as an adult male, a, a little bit larger brain size. This creature was clearly an walked erect in an obligatory manner, had body proportions that were more similar to humans than anything else, modern humans, and made tools, again, that were only a little bit more sophisticated than what we see with, with uh, Homo habilis. And then Neanderthals appear on the scene. There's Actually, we have genetic data from Neanderthals, which is in and of itself remarkable, and it looks as if Neanderthals really represent a side branch or a dead end. There's no evidence whatsoever that Neanderthals evolved into, into humans. Again, they're considered to be a side branch. These creatures were about the same height as humans. They were much more robust, though. They had a bigger or a larger stature. Their brain size was about our brain size, but their, the structure of the brain was very different than our brain, and in that they didn't seem to have advanced cognitive capabilities. And so they did make tools again, but their tool usage was very crude and cumbersome compared to, to that, that of modern humans. Again, I look at all of these creatures as just being part of God's creation, creatures that were fascinating in their own right, marvelous in their own right, but yet creatures that, again, were animals in that they lacked the image of God. And any kind of biological similarity with humans reflects, to me, common design, not common descent. Now, some of the more famous uh, discoveries here, let's talk about them a little bit. We have Lucy, which family or group does she fall into here? Lucy, the one that was discovered in Africa. Yeah, she's, she would be an Australopithecine. So, yeah, and it's interesting that with Lucy, even though she's always drawn in these, you know, descent of man pictures as being part of the human lineage, the fact of the matter is many anthropologists think that she was actually a side branch or a dead end and really not part of the human lineage. Again, this is stuff that's in the scientific literature. It very, very seldom will make its way into the popular media for consumption. Now, we also still hear of others, Java Man and Peking Man. Where would they fall in one of these groups? 
those would both be examples of Homo erectus. And tell us a little bit about them. There's dispute over these, but these are genuine species, right? They're not any kind of fabrication or anything, are they? No, they're, they're not. Although the scientists who discovered Java Man, Dubois, actually made a mistake where he had part of a Homo erectus skull that he associated with a modern human femur. And so when people later on discovered that was the case, there have been some Christian apologists who said, look, we can't really trust or believe that John of the Man was a real specimen because of the mistake that Dubois made. But we've later on have discovered many, many other examples of, of Homo erectus where the, the features match that of Java Man, meaning that Java Man, at least the part that was uh, attributed rightfully to Homo erectus, is just one of many Homo erectus specimens that we have. Peking Man was discovered by uh, Davidson Black, who was a Canadian physician, and that was originally attributed as its own distinct species, and people later on figured out that that too was an example of a Homo erectus. Now, tell us a little bit about Neanderthal man. I was eventually taught that it was a diagram, I believe the French anthropologist who drew it, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Boulle or Boulet, and that he was mistaken in his drawing. He made the jaw a little too thick, and he moved the connection from the neck to the shoulders a little bit too far forward, and that there was arthritis in the uh, fossil, making him look like he was a hunched-over kind of form. And so really he was, a, he was just a human being with serious arthritis and that this diagram was drawn incorrectly. Is that the case with Neanderthal man? Well, in my opinion, Neanderthal is, man is a, a distinct species that's separate from modern humans. And, you know, one thing that we have to be careful about is to look at mistakes that people made in the very early days of anthropology because, you know, Boole's interpretation of Neanderthals was at, the, again, the very early stages of anthropology when people were just beginning to discover Neanderthal specimens. But we literally have well over 100 Neanderthal specimens. Many of them are almost complete skeletal remains. And so we have a very good understanding of their anatomy. We have a good understanding of how they grew and developed. We have skeletal remains of Neanderthal infants, and we even have genetic material now from Neanderthals, and all of this data indicates that they were a distinct species from modern humans, and again, from an evolutionary standpoint, are a side branch or a dead end. Nobody believes that Neanderthals evolved into humans anymore that, that are anthropologists. Why do they not hold to the idea that they evolved into humans? Because the anatomy is so different, and the genetic data indicates that there's not that genetic continuity between, again, humans and Neanderthals. And so, it, and, and, and so the evolutionary biologists argue that Neanderthals are a side branch. And so what they will do is they'll say, well, maybe there was a creature before Neanderthals that gave rise to humans as a separate branch from Neanderthals. And so they have this hominid called Homo heidelbergensis that they argue was that, that ancestor to humans and Neanderthals, but there have been some recent studies where people have tried to, to validate the idea that, that Homo heidelbergensis is the ancestor to humans and Neanderthals, and those studies actually failed to demonstrate that. And so 
I talk about that particular work in the update to my book, uh, Who is Adam? But that's rather, I think, problematic is that evolutionary biologists, again, can't show that Neanderthals evolved into humans. They render them a side branch and say, well, this, must, this hominid must be that ancestral species. And then when they try to confirm that with independent studies, those studies fail to show that. And so right now, nobody knows who or what that ancestor was that gave rise to humans and Neanderthals, but that's part of the, the human evolutionary theory. But it's, it's an idea that fails to have any kind of validation. Now, you mentioned a good point here that we're not just looking at one or two fossils of Homo habilis or Homo erectus. I mean, there are many fossils that are out there that make these legit animals out there. That's right. I mean, we've got, yeah, just a large number of finds that now constitute the hominin fossil record. And so we have a pretty good idea of, again, at least in broad brush terms, what the different hominids were. And we have increasing understanding of their biology and even what their behavioral capabilities were like. To me, I think as Christians, we have to accept the reality of the hominid fossil record. But I think the good news is there are great ways for us to think about these hominids from a Christian worldview perspective that allows us to affirm the Genesis 1 creation account and the Genesis 2 creation account, by the way, without embracing the idea of human evolution. In other words, the existence of these hominids doesn't equate to the idea that human evolution is a fact. These hominids can exist, and we can still be skeptical about human evolution and the evolutionary paradigm in a broad sense. So these four groups of hominids here, would you classify them more closely with the apes, or are they just their own separate thing? I would say that they're not apes. They're their own separate thing. And so just in the same way that we have chimpanzees and bonobos and orangutans and gorillas that all constitute the great apes, when it comes to the hominins, we have Neanderthals and Homo erectus and Homo habilis and the Australopithecines that constitute the hominins. And the different, only difference is that we have great apes with us today, but these hominins have gone extinct, have disappeared. And so we don't have living examples of them. But if we did, I think we would be impressed with them on one hand because they would be remarkable creatures in their own right, but that we would readily see that they were not the same thing as we are as human beings because they were animals, and I would argue that they lacked the image of God. And as much as we can tell from the archaeological record, there's no reason to think that any of these creatures had advanced cognitive ability, had the capacity for language, had the capacity for art or religious expression whatsoever. Those properties are only found in association with with modern humans. Yeah, expand on that a little bit more for us. I mean, what constitutes what we can say is human behavior? That's a great question. And, you know, when it comes to the image of God, there are a number of different models that theologians have advanced. And the, the model that I adhere to is called the resemblance view. And that view basically says that what constitutes the image of God are capabilities that we have that resemble the capabilities of the Creator. They're not identical to the Creator's capabilities, but they resemble them. And so, for example, our technical inventiveness, our creativity, our capacity for rational thought, symbolic thought, uh, those would all be one aspect of the image of God. Our 
sense of morality, that there's a right and a wrong, and our, our desire for justice would be another feature of the image of God. Our desire to worship the Creator and to recognize a reality beyond the physical material world would be another aspect of the image of God. Also, our desire for relationships with each other and our relationship with the Creator and our desire for religious expression, again, would be part of the image of God. And while all you know, those, some of those aspects are not going to manifest themselves in the archaeological record, other aspects actually will. So I think the archaeological record is a great way to probe for the image of God. And it's interesting because when we look at the archaeological record, we see no evidence that Neanderthals engaged in art. They did make tools, but their tool usage was crude and cumbersome compared to humans. But when modern humans show up, almost immediately, out of nowhere, we see this very sophisticated behavior that shows up. We see artistic expression, musical expression, religious expression. We see ritualistic burials that all, again, are consistent with humans bearing the image of God and being unique and distinct from all other creatures. Sometimes we'll hear you know, that people who hold to the evolutionary view, and this is an idea that traces to Darwin himself, say, well, human beings are only different in degree, not different in kind from the other creatures. Well, more and more, there are anthropologists who are actually arguing there really is such a thing as human exceptionalism, that human beings seem to stand separate from all other creatures, that we're not different only in degree from other creatures, we really are different in kind. And that's rather a remarkable concession on the part of evolutionary biologists, but the way in which we seem to be exceptional matches what we would expect if indeed human beings are uniquely made in God's image. And so to me, that's extremely encouraging as a Christian. Yes, I think you bring up a great point that these hominids are indeed valid, and so we need, it needs to fit in our biblical narrative here. We just can't simply dismiss them. But speaking of that, where in the Genesis account would these hominids fit in? I would say that they are probably on the sixth day of creation, where the text describes God creating animals on the land. And, and I just think that's a very general description of what God did when he brought about animal life on the land. It's not giving us a lot of specific details. It's not giving us a lot of information about the sequence by which God created the different animals that appear on the land. It's just simply making a statement that God was the one who created the animals that appear on the land. And so I would just lump the hominids in with other, the other creatures that God made on the sixth day of creation. Now, you say these species went extinct, but also other you know animal species went extinct. But some people would ask, well, why would God make species just to have them go extinct? Well, you know, I take the view that throughout the Earth's history there have been changes on the Earth so that at certain times some creatures are, are going to be able to survive and thrive, but as the Earth's conditions change, those creatures, again, are not going to be suitable for the environment of the Earth, and so they're going to simply naturally die out, and that God will come along and recreate new creatures that would exist in the ever-changing environment of the Earth. And so to me this is just simply part of the process that God went through, you know, as he essentially transformed the earth and, and ultimately made it suitable and habitable for human beings. And so, when, to be clear, when I say process, I'm not referring here to an evolutionary process, but rather to this idea 
uh, that God is progressively creating different life forms at different times in Earth's history that would be suitable for the planet under those particular sets of conditions. Well, now tell us about this new discovery here. We eventually got to it. Homo naledi. I mean, it's a discovery made there in Africa of not just one, but over a dozen fossils here. Where do you think this discovery is going? Well, I mean, this is, to me, a, a discovery that, in terms of its significance, is still, it still remains to be seen just what the significance is. In terms of the magnitude of the discovery, it's pretty remarkable because they have over 1,500 fossil bones that can be shown to form at least 15 individuals that are male and female and juvenile and adults. And so this is an incredible find just in, in terms of having that many fossil bones as part of the find. But nobody really knows where this hominid fits in the human evolutionary story. You know, there's a dispute right now. Is it a transitional form? Is it a side branch? So nobody really knows what kind of significance to ascribe to this creature, at least from an evolutionary standpoint. And again, this discovery threatens to rewrite the human evolutionary story. And this is so typical where new discoveries create chaos as opposed to bringing clarity, which to me suggests that maybe we should be skeptical about human evolution if a single discovery can force a rewriting of the human evolutionary story, just how secure is that story? In science, new discoveries should bring clarity and, and greater affirmation for a theory if indeed it's a valid theory, and the fact that that's not the case should give us reason to be skeptical about human evolution. But from a biblical perspective, Homo naledi to me is fascinating, it's interesting, but it fits right into my, per my perspective, my framework. It's just an example of a, a creature that, again, is part of the, the hominin fossil record that existed and then later went extinct. And it's exciting to me because, oh, this is a cool creature that God created that we didn't know about until Lee Berger and his team of, of researchers uh, uncovered evidence for this particular specimen. So I don't see this as a threat to my faith whatsoever, but just see the model that I have for the hominins that is from a biblical perspective being, again, able to accommodate this discovery and other discoveries like it. So you wouldn't put Homo naledi in, in one of these four hominid groups, although some well, argue it's, I mean, it's Homo erectus, a type of Homo erectus, but you think it falls in one of these four? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's probably either Homo habilis or Homo erectus in, in the broadest sense. But, you know, it's interesting because even though you have those four main categories of hominins, there's a, a dispute among anthropologists as to how many actual species there are. So when it comes to, like, let's say Homo habilis, there are people that argue maybe Homo habilis is a single species. Others argue that maybe it actually ought to be broken up into several species, Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis, Homo georgicus, as examples. When it comes to Homo erectus, some people say, well, maybe it was just a single species, or others say, well, maybe there was Homo ergaster and Homo erectus, and maybe Homo georgicus belongs with Homo with the erectines as opposed to the habilines. When it comes to the Australopithecines, people have argued that maybe there was one or two species. Others argue that maybe there's a whole bunch. And so, again, you know, this is part of kind of a debate that's taking place among anthropologists. But in terms of broad categories, 
you know, there are four broad categories, which would be, again, kind of the Australopithecines, the Habilines, the Erectines, and then they would be the grouping that Neanderthals belong to, which might even include creatures like Homo heidelbergensis as an example. So as we bring this show to a close, summarize for us once again these hominids. What exactly are they in? Are they indeed some kind of ancestral link to human beings, or exactly how should we look at them? Well, you know, I would argue that the hominids were real creatures. They existed for a period of time. They went extinct. I see them as part of God's creation. I see them as animals. They had intelligence. They had emotional capability, but they lacked the image of God. And that I see them in the same vein that I would see chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas. Fascinating creatures, but clearly creatures that are nothing like human beings. And I would argue that it's very difficult to defend the idea of human evolution from the hominid fossil record, and that just because the hominids existed doesn't mean that that means that human evolution is a fact. We can see these hominids as part of God's creation without seeing them as being evolutionary predecessors to modern humans. That's a great summary there. And there's a huge jump isn't there huge uh, changes that need to occur to go from these creatures to a human being, even at the cell level, as you describe in your book, don't you? Yes, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, th that the, the transition is enormous. Even to go from a knuckle-walking ape to a creature that could stand erect involves such large changes to the anatomy and the physiology that it's very difficult to envision how that could happen you know, even gradually over a protracted period of time. And so, yeah, even something simple as going from a knuckle-walking creature to one that stands erect requires wholesale rearrangement of the biology of the creature. It's hard to envision how that could happen in a coherent manner in a relatively short period of time. Yes, and I think one of the things points you make in your book is that going from apes or monkeys to humans is a huge, huge jump. But going from non-life to amino acids uh, combinations to making proteins to RNA and, D and eventually DNA, that's an even huger, big, bigger jump, isn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, the, the transition from non-life to life, is it's just beyond imagination how something like that could happen through mechanistic processes alone. And what's interesting to me is even original life researchers who devoted their whole lives to trying to explain how that happens are very quick to acknowledge that we have no explanation from an evolutionary standpoint how life came from non-life. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fuzz Rana. He is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe and the author of several groundbreaking books, Who Was Adam? Creating Life in a Lab and Cell Design. Uh, one of the things that I think makes these books terrific is that they not only show the flaws in the evolutionary arguments, but they also present their own model or their own case of how, you know, life came about not only with man, but life in the cell, life here upon the earth. They also present a valid model as well. I believe that's one of the strengths and uniquenesses of your book, uh, Fuzz. Thank you very much. Now, Fuzz, if people want to get more information upon the things we talked about today, but also on other information, cell design and creating life from the lab and other things. You've got a, 
a series of great articles there on the web as well. Tell us where people can get more information. If people go to reasons.org, www.reasons.org, they can access all kinds of articles dealing with science faith issues for no cost, podcasts, videos, the whole gambit. And we also have a number of resources that we have that allow people to dig even deeper into these various issues. So reasons.org is a great place to start. Yes, reasons.org. It's a treasure trove of those who are serious about science and serious about their Christian faith and the message you're giving us. That's right. Yes, science is, is the greatest ally that the Christian faith has today if we properly understand it. Fantastic. Well, Fuzz, thanks for being on the show with us. We look forward to having you again, not only on the show, but back here in Hawaii. Hey, anytime you want me to come to Hawaii, Pat, I'm there. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on the Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>